You're listening to Got Tech, the podcast with your hosts, Nick Johnson and Eric Geis. In this episode of Got Tech, the podcast, Nick and I discuss the core values of a teacher. We talk about the question of the day regarding hyperdocs. We identify some of the misconceptions of the one-to-one classroom, and we'll finish off with another Tech Battle Royale. So Easter was this past Sunday. We're just coming off a spring break at our school, spending time with family and traveling around and just sort of taking some time to relax. Kind of got Geis and I thinking a little bit about core values as a teacher and what that means. Uh, Sometimes you get so bogged down in the day-to-day and finishing menial tasks like like grading and just doing things that you're not really too excited about doing. You kind of lose track of education and how it can be such an important thing and so valuable and something that we all got into the profession for a reason, for a purpose, um, with those core values in mind. So today we begin by asking the question, uh, what are your core values? What does teaching mean to you? I know for me, the whole process kind of started in high school. I always loved, I'm a chemistry teacher, by the way, and I always loved science. It was one of my favorite things. But I never in a million years could have imagined being a teacher was not part of the plan until I had uh, my my high school chemistry teacher um, not only made me love chemistry, but made me love teaching. So at the same time, I kind of found a a passion for this particular science, but also he just made it look really fun to do that job every day. He came in. You could tell that he was excited to do the job, which kind of transferred over to me and made me think for the first time, kind of like, wow, that's that could be really cool to stand up there and kind of share this passion with uh, my students every single day. So I think uh, right now it's probably a good time to give a shout out to that teacher. Yeah, that's uh, Mr. Hodge, by the way, who retired some years ago. He actually, uh, he, he did a lot for me too. I The summer before I went to college, he hired me to come work on his farm. So he pretty much paid, gave me all my spending money that my freshman year of college, he's a great guy. And I always considered my core values of teaching to kind of stem from that, mostly be about sharing that passion for for science, for teaching, just for learning about the world in general, uh, getting excited to share content. That's that's easy to lose after you've been teaching for a number of years. Sometimes people tend to lose that excitement because from your perspective, you're just kind of sharing the same information from year to year. But I think it's important to remember that there was a time when we were all really pumped every day to share that information with our students. Also, just getting excited about trying new things, new instructional methods. I used to get really excited when I would make a new PowerPoint that I thought was really good. And I was like, man, these kids are going to love this. I've got these pictures and videos and these activities outlined. And it made me excited to be there. So I think we should uh, try to remember that. Yeah, I think uh, you bring up several good points. Uh, We probably share some of the same characteristics of the people that we're trying to be like right now. And For me, sports, athletics has been a big part of my life, my whole life. And, uh, you know, I've had a lot of great coaches. I've had a lot of great role models. Uh, My grandfather probably got me into baseball when I was three years old. He insisted to take me in the backyard, and he bought me one of those wiffle ball bats, the big red Bambino bats. Oh, yeah. With the huge uh, ball that comes with it. 
I think it's a confidence builder at the age of three. And he would play all day with me. And then, you know, my father was my coach for most of my life in whatever sport I played. And he did a fantastic job. He was uh, tough but fair on me. But I get a lot of my uh, personal characteristics from those two. But, you know, taking it a step further, playing college athletics and then afterwards playing a little bit uh, outside of college and now coaching for the last 13 years. I have ran into several good coaches that I coach with right now. And one that I coach with, he has all his rules, all his themes, and everything that we work towards is based on three words. And that's prepare, respect, and compete. And really those three words encompass a lot of things. So I carry that into my teaching practice. Preparation is everything you do before you go into your lesson, and that includes trying something new, preparing for obstacles that you might face when you are trying something new. It's trying to put yourself in these tough situations and figure out how you could get out of these tough situations if you do, in fact, face a problem. Respect is respecting whatever you're teaching, challenging yourself to become a better teacher, So respecting the profession, respecting your students means that you're making a great attempt to go figure out how that they learn the best way and that you're conforming your classroom into the best way that they will learn as a class rather than the most comfortable way that you like to teach. Now me personally, and I know you do the same thing, I like to bring comedy, humor into the classroom. I take every classroom as 60 minutes of stand-up without trying to make every single moment something funny. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way. It keeps it fun, it keeps it light, and I think it helps people uh, focus a lot more, too, when that's the kind of environment you you bring to the front of the room whenever you're uh, trying to instruct. And I I think that really helps build relationships with your students and get to know them. Uh, Being able to keep it light and making it a safe space. Compete is just how you carry out everything that you prepared. If you did your preparation and you really respected the lesson that you created, the competition or the execution of the lesson should be the easiest part. So, I mean, for me, that's a simplified way of making something that's more complex rather simplistic. I, I like it. I think uh, it's interesting, too, because a lot of those things, it's the same It's the same of what we ask, we ask our students to do, but it's just requiring those things of yourself as well, preparing for every day, respecting the profession, the students, the building, your colleagues, and then viewing it like a competition. I, I'm, I'm not really conscious all the time that I do that, but I am trying to be the best. You know, with, with every single day, every lesson, I want to be the best chemistry teacher, the best science teacher, and I think that goes a long way. Yeah, and being the best is just the best in your own shoes. I think we, it's not a competition other than a competition with yourself. Right. And I think that, I know that you do a good job with that. You you like to collaborate. You make something cool you like to share. I'm telling you out there, Nick Johnson is PowerPoint. All right. When he makes a PowerPoint, it is, it is not distracting. It just absorbs you. He can make the best infographic or animations for a PowerPoint, and it kind of makes you look like you're in the... Uh, the previews in a movie theater. Yes, that's exactly what I'm going for. I want it to be, I don't know, and it's it kind of stinks because I put so much time into getting really good with PowerPoint, and now we're sort of moving away from that with all the tech stuff, but I think there's still a place for it um, as you're running a classroom, and I'm glad to hear you say that. That's pretty cool. All right, so I guess uh, figure out what your core values are, 
see where they stem from and see if you can reflect a little bit on how you bring those core values into your teaching. You can follow Got Teched outside the podcast at gottech.com or on Twitter at WeGotTeched. All right, Nick, we have Ryan Tobin on the question hotline. Really, we ran into him in passing, and he's going to give us his question on HyperDocs. Hello, my name is Ryan Tobin. I'm a ninth to 12th grade special ed teacher. I've heard a lot about HyperDocs. I was wondering if you could explain what they are and give me your opinion if I can use them at the high school level. I have to say thanks for this question. It, it, actually, there's several questions that were asked here, and we're going to go through each one uh, question by question make sure that we give you an answer that will be useful to you and also to other listeners. So what is a HyperDoc? A HyperDoc is a transformative way for a teacher to make a Google Doc or Sheet or whatever platform they're using come alive and really engage the student. I, I think that's the best way, a simplistic way to simplify what a HyperDoc is. Now, we have to also think about what makes up a HyperDoc and who can use the HyperDoc. And I think that is targeted as you develop a HyperDoc. Sure. Uh, you, you can. First of all, they can be used at any grade level, elementary, uh, middle school, high school, it's just whatever, whatever level you teach at, you just design it and build it for that purpose. So that's really important just to know right off the bat. We're talking to everybody here, every subject, every grade level, it's possible to use one of these. And I think the best way to understand it is to imagine replacing, replacing the typical kind of style of teaching off of a worksheet where students take notes they fill in answers, it's collected and graded either for completion or for correctness. But replacing that with something that's electronic and interactive that doesn't require students to sit there and listen to the teacher for 20, 30 minutes, maybe even longer, taking notes, just kind of verbatim answering questions, it engages them in the process. It's visually appealing. It has links to videos, tons of other different resources. Really just kind of then frees up the teacher too because the teacher is no longer providing the direct instruction. Now the teacher becomes that guide on the side that we always talk about and is free to kind of help students with what they need. To go along with that, I mean, you make a great point. The teacher has more time to go around to groups. This is a collaborative idea here. HyperDocs allows students to follow the 21st century learning you know, the four C's, being creative, being collaborative, being critical thinkers, and good communicators. So it follows all that. And really, hyperdocs, in my opinion, are an easy first step for teachers who aren't tech comfortable to become tech comfortable. Right. It's a nice, it's a simple way to make the transition, I think, into into incorporating blended learning because it, it kind of follows a lot of the same stuff you would do in a, in a typical, like a traditionally taught lesson, which makes teachers feel more comfortable in instituting it, I think. Um, so it's, it's a great way to kind of incorporate some of that technology for the first time if you're new to it. And I think it's hard to describe what a hyperdoc is uh, just in this in this auditory kind of way. So we're going to provide an amazing resource for you guys where you can actually go click and see one. So guys, I don't know if you want to walk through. Well, first, I just want to bring up the point that a lot of teachers right now are using PowerPoint or Google Slides, and they they have links to videos and things. And HyperDocs are basically just taking those links, those resources, those knowledge 
pieces and organizing them in a way that students can take charge of their own learning. It could be a more student-centered approach. So really the preparation for the teacher is minimal because they already have most of this stuff in one shape or form or of another, you know. It's there. All they have to do is now bring it into an organized way that allows students to easily work through it. And I think that's important. So I guess right now we just have to kind of go through it a little bit. And what better way to doing it is to introduce the HyperDoc girls. Yeah, the uh, the HyperDoc girls are really at the, the forefront of pushing HyperDocs and, and what they are and the best way to use them. They have um, an amazing resource. So we're going to share the website now. It's hyperdocs.co. And that's that brings you straight to their homepage where there's tons of links that tell you about them. The resources tab on that homepage is amazing and I think is our recommendation if you're interested in, in this to click on that resources tab. I would just go straight to the templates or the samples they provide just to give you a good idea of what it is we're actually describing. They also have um, a book out that we would recommend purchasing called the HyperDocs Handbook, I believe. Yep, Hyper, the HyperDoc Handbook, which is provides even, even more amazing resources on how to create these things, what they should look like for use in your classroom. Yeah, the HyperDoc Handbook is amazing. I actually have a copy of it. I, I picked it up as a resource for a project that I had to do during my coursework. Uh, the HyperDoc girls are very visual in the education world. They're at conferences. Uh, they have a lot of interviews that they've done that's on YouTube. I've checked all those out. Just back to their, their website. Can't say enough about the organization of the website, and it really paints the picture of HyperDocs and really... I think it does a good job at allowing a teacher that isn't very tech comfortable to become tech comfortable through the layout of the site. And the one spot that we have to talk about is the resource tab. So let's just get right into it. I got I got one pulled up right now. I just clicked from the hyperdocs.co homepage, resources and samples. I'd like to see an actual lesson sample. Templates only get me so far. That's just a personal thing. I clicked on one called Cajun Road Trip, just so everybody knows which, what we're describing here. It opens up a, a Google Doc, but the first thing I want that you should have a good image of is that it's not just a white page. It's not with some text. It's colored. There's interesting fonts. There's pictures. It, it looks visually appealing. The whole idea behind a hyperdoc is to engage students more than just sitting there and listening to you. And it could be really boring just to share out a Google Doc with some links that they click. You really want to make these things visually interesting to look at. And this one begins, I'm actually going to read this because it's kind of cool. It begins with a little scenario, which is you and a partner will be planning a trip across Louisiana. You will begin in the Sportsman's Paradise region and finish in the plantation region, record at least six important landmarks or places that you would like to stop along the way. Place each spot on a Google map and include a paragraph with information about each region and why you want to stop at each landmark you chose. So it begins with this super cool task. It's, it's interesting. It's not just answering questions. When you scroll past that further down, it starts providing resources. There's a list in this one of five different links to click on that takes students to other websites and videos and simulations where they can find information. This is now taking the place of them sitting there and listening to a lecture, taking notes, much more interesting. And then after that, it provides more details on what the students are to create, their, their outline of this uh, road trip. What I love about this is that it the scenario the opening scenario is phenomenal uh, you you can find several different ways of doing a scenario like i would say you're you're planning a vacation across louisiana 
for your family. You could say that. Or you're a tourist group and you have to make a six destination experience to allow business to come through your tourist group. And you want to make them the most popular, diverse, just so you can get clientele to come in. And you can make it real world experiences through this just through a scenario well that's the i think that's the best part about it is imagine starting a lesson by saying okay guys today we're going to learn about some really important louisiana history and and some of the places around our state that are that are historical and important to us as as natives of louisiana which could be interesting if if a student is excited about history and likes that but then imagine the scenario that we just read which is hey you're going on a road trip you got to pick pick six different places to stop at and explain to me why they may not even know that they're going to learn about some of that state's history before they begin, but it's it's that real world application that makes it so interesting, and they get to work through it all at their at their own pace, which is even more even more powerful. So after that, they would go through the links, and the great thing here is we have another piece of technology embedded in there, and the non tech comfortable teacher was like, I don't want to have to teach you know how to use Google Maps and plot points and stuff like that. So what can you do to really solve that problem? It's one of your web links is a tutorial on YouTube, because everything's on YouTube, of how to use a Google Map uh, tech tool and plot those points. Yep. Um, so uh, just to and go back to the HyperDoc girls, their website, the resources and samples link that I was just on, this is just under the history and geography section. They have sections for each subject and grade level. This has, it looks like there's got to be, man, maybe 70 to 100 different samples of Google Doc, uh, HyperDocs. There's also some HyperDocs here created from Google Slides. Really, you can use any uh, of the Google formats to uh, create one of these, anything that allows you to link resources that the students can click on themselves. So we just really encourage everyone to go there and check some of these things out to see what they look like. And you can even even use uh, the ones that have been pre-created by the HyperDoc girls. They're all there for uh, for us to, to use ourselves as well. So we just talked about a sample that you could go to. Underneath the resource tab uh, on their website, they also have templates. And the templates are sever- several different ways for you to uh, implement a HyperDoc. They have the basic HyperDoc lesson, which is engage, explore, explain, apply, share, uh, perfect, or reflect. They have all that there. And then they have like creative writing challenges. And you could really come up with your own templates one that i'm thinking about coming up with is with my claims evidence reasoning i'm a big claims evidence reasoning guy i really like that that format that set up it gets students to uh pick a stance on a question gets them to evaluate data and have to make reasoning through the evaluation of data and this fits right into the hyperdoc i personally use google sites prior to this and google sites are a little bit more you know time consuming i I would say than a hyperdoc especially when you have the template to work with so I'm really starting to think maybe I need to come over to the HyperDoc side right. and really uh, do a couple of my claim evidence reasoning lessons on there and maybe share those out. The other cool part I just thought of as you were talking is you can create a HyperDoc that's very brief and just kind of covers like one lesson or one task that might take students just a class period. If there's just two or three quick resources for them to click on and they're just creating, I don't know, maybe a poster or just kind of writing a pair, maybe a CER, claims evidence reasoning paragraph. It doesn't take 
super long. Uh, you can do it that way, or you can create a big giant hyperdoc that covers an entire unit of material that might have 20 different resources and a whole list of learning tasks that they either have to complete or can choose to complete. Uh, the possibilities are endless for whatever you're comfortable with. I mean, you could really use this as a introductory question of the day type thing sure. or an exit slip as well. So the versatility of a hyperdoc is, you know, pretty amazing in itself. So make sure that you go out, uh, look on hyperdocs.co, take a look at the resources and go buy the hyperdoc girls book. We'll have their uh, social media information for Twitter in our show notes. We'll have a link to their book where you could buy it on Amazon. Make sure that you uh, come up with some templates. If you want to share them out, you can uh, post them as a link on our feed or you can email them to us and we'll uh, share them out to all our listeners and uh, make sure that you have the credit on there. But we can make this one big HyperDoc community. All right, Nick, let's get into talking about some misconceptions of the one-to-one -one classroom. Just a little bit of a backdrop as to why we're talking about this. I was at a professional development earlier this week, and that was the main topic. We've been fortunate here at our school to kind of have one-to-one -one devices for the last three years. First year was a pilot year, which I actually was one of the two teachers that piloted the Chromebooks. Actually, that might have been four years ago because I think we had a full pilot after because we were trying to decide whether or not we wanted to go uh, Google versus Microsoft. That's true. Basically. We tried out some different brands, right? Some different brands of laptops, I think, to yeah. provide the kids. Yeah. At this professional development, we got on topic of talking one-to-one, -one, and there are some schools that are just now starting to pilot one-to-one -one programs and then when I came back and I started talking to Nick about what I learned at the professional development he was like you know that's funny I just had a conversation with a parent so maybe why don't you bring up your conversation and the questions that we're asking sure and we can kind of go over some of these misconceptions yeah if the idea of one-to-one -one is new to you like if you're a parent and you hear that now the school is providing your child with a, a laptop a personal laptop that they get to use and bring home and now they're doing all the work on for sure you're going to have some questions the one that was brought to me was the parent the parent was concerned that now that their child has a laptop that they were just going to be sitting on a computer all day they didn't like that idea they thought that i mean they they think that their kid is on technology too much already because uh, the cell phones obviously which may or may not be true i don't know how much this kid is, is on uh, his or her phone but uh, the parent definitely didn't like the idea that now there was another piece of tech on top of the phone on top of the personal laptop the family computer whatever they had now in school where this particular person thought they should be doing other things I don't know what their ideas about what education should look like were but they just didn't like it which I totally get it sounds like a lot of time it sounds like a lot of screen time where kids are just staring at a computer screen and let's be honest you know education is really changing sure. especially when you think about it I know for me cell phone usage 
and this was 2001, I was one of a handful of students that actually had cell phones that weren't plugged into our car. Right. When I say handheld devices, they were six inches. Sure. Six inches of cell phone that would weigh down your pants I had right the, now. I had the big giant black Motorola thing. I, I was in high school when I got my first I had phone. a Nokia. Yeah, that was the other one. Everybody, the Nokias were like square, weren't yeah. they? The rectangle ones? Yeah. It basically looked like an oversized uh, remote right. for a very big right. clunky TV. <laughs> right. And they, they were ridiculous. But uh, obviously now, I, everybody knows that that theme has skyrocketed and we all have them and we're all on them and, and some of the students are, are way worse than, than we are because they're on them all the time. And that can be a concern, but I, I think that people, both parents and maybe even teachers that are new to this, need to know that it's not true that in a one-to-one classroom that a student is on the Chromebook or on the laptop all the time because that should not be the case. Uh, the teacher is still in the room. The teacher still presents content to the class. There's still acti different activities that happen in a science room. There's still labs that take place, group projects, discussions actually should happen more often now that there's an electronic tool to help facilitate that. And I think that's the big message, that the the technology is an extra resource. It helps to facilitate things that are more valuable classroom experiences with the tech. It doesn't mean that you're staring at a screen and that's where all the learning is happening now. You, you can disagree or agree with me, but the use of technology should only be for enhancements Right. of a lesson. So if you're just using it to substitute a piece of paper and you're pushing out a piece of paper, well, that's not having an educational enhancement to a lesson. That's just substituting something out. Exactly. So you want to use the Chromebook as a resource that's really going to enhance the lesson, take it above and beyond what it already is and, right. and make it into something that is engaging. We want to engage our students so they do better. Sure. So. I have I have tons of lessons that I love and I think I do really well and it doesn't involve the kids on a computer at all and I'm gonna probably keep doing those because they work great just because the computers exist and all the, all the students have one doesn't mean that they have to stare at them all the time just to wrap up this point we really need to also take into consideration that most of our parents nowadays weren't around technology all the time like the students are and as a teacher it's our job to teach the best way that our students learn and right now we're in a generation where the students know cell phones and they know iPods and iPads and, and all these little gadgets and they grew up with them. So if we go try to teach them with something completely foreign, they're going to be lost. Right. We need to teach them the best way that they're capable of learning. So we have to match their strengths. What do you think about this one? I recently heard uh, someone say that, well, now that there's computers, the teacher doesn't do anything now. They just sit in front of the classroom and let the kids watch videos and take online tests and you hang out all day. We're glorified study hall proctors. That's a quote that I got from a parent. Right. Your glorified study hall proctors or your glorified babysitters. Really, our role is changing. Education now isn't so individualized that the lecture, the students in charge of taking the notes and making sure he or she understands what the teacher was lecturing. The teacher is now becoming the guide on the side or the facilitator. So they're still preparing. It's actually probably more prep work to prepare some of these activities from scratch than it is to stand up in the front of the class and, and hold a lecture. It does, I can just to jump in, it takes way longer to prep something involving the one-to-one -one device because it's so much more enriching. There's so much more to create there. You can't just type a few questions uh, into a worksheet or a packet and hand it out. There's a lot to do. You have a lot more opportunity to bring 
outside pieces right. into your classroom. For example, for a lecture, it's very hard to have some type of an interactive website or have a video that's going to lead your discussion. Now, with these one-to-one devices, they could get into small groups. You could have five different videos going on, one per group, and then they have to take in the video that they're watching, kind of highlight the major parts, and then bring a summary back to the class. That's more enriching and gets more students involved than the lectures. I feel like when we go back to the lecture style format, it is effective. Sure. But I feel like more students check out. Yeah, you, you can see it. Now that I'm, I guess I consider myself kind of in the transitioning process from more of like a lecture-based thing over to more personalized educational methods using the tech tools. And you can totally see it. When, when I'm up there talking to them as a large group, for sure, the percentage of kids that aren't listening or aren't engaged is higher. Maybe not much higher all the time, but it's always higher. And sometimes it's definitely significant. I'm also going to add in there that as far as the teacher not doing anything, there are days that I'm almost busier because if all the students are working on their own things, viewing content at their own pace, that means at, le- as l- at least as long as I'm doing my job properly, I'm circulating around the room helping kids. I'm receiving feedback electronically and then trying to decide who I need to help and how I need to help them based on that feedback. So it actually can be a lot of work in class because uh, you're, you're busy, you're helping kids, just you're helping them actually with what they need help with. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. With a lecture, you're lecturing sometimes to 25 students. With these small groups, when they use their one-to-one devices, you're able to work more one-on-one or at least in smaller groups with these students. So if you have five groups and one group has a question, you're able to address five students rather than during your lecture, you're, you're addressing 25 students. Right. So I think that's an added benefit of the one-to-one classroom. What about the misconception that teachers have to hurry up and convert everything to electronic formats? This is almost like a misconception from new teachers. Right. Well, not new teachers, but teachers that are new to the one-to-one classroom. That's my that's my favorite one because I feel that personally. Sometimes I feel like I'm doing something wrong because all my stuff isn't converted to electronic yet. And you, you really do have to remind yourself that that is 100% not the case. To I think to do one-to-one well, which means finding valuable online content for the kids kids to view, finding ways to assess that electronically, finding resources outside of that content to help students who are struggling. It takes so much time, way longer than it would take, I think, to develop a, a normal course where you were just lecturing and giving tests. It's There's no way it could happen in the course of a year, two, maybe even, I think, three years, at least for me, at the pace I like to work at, would be a stretch to say my entire course, September to June, would be converted to electronic. And I think teachers need to know that nobody nobody would expect that. I don't think at least. I mean, have you ever heard of a district that would say, okay, this is the year, everything's tech, we're not paying for any more paper, it's all gone. I know that the goal is to reduce the amount of paper that right. is used. And, and to be honest with you, if you think back to your teaching, when I think back to when I taught, there are some things that probably did not need to be printed out and they'd be sure. more effective just as like a guided note sheet that they could put in their Google Drive. The reduction of paper, yeah, I think that's probably a good thing. But at the same time, I don't think it's taken away from their education to get some of these worksheets online without having to print them out. Right. 
you know, people are, are aware of all these things too. And I think you just, you do it at your own pace, whatever you're comfortable with. If you're about to start a new unit and you choose one lesson to convert over to some kind of electronic format because you found some video or an article that does a really good job at explaining it or does a great job at introducing the concept, that's great. Just do that one thing this one time. And just like it always has been, I think as years goes on, you build a catalog of stuff that works well for you and involves tech in a comfortable way. Our first supervisor here at our school, she once told me that you always want to focus on your what you consider your weakest unit or your weakest lesson. And if you're always improving your weakest lesson, you're always getting the bottom of what you consider your quality lessons more quality. And I think that's a very good point to make and kind of stand by. It's good advice. Is that Mary who said that? Yeah, that that is Mary Yeomans. Awesome lady. Great supervisor. It was very hard to find somebody to replace that role. Yeah, she was the best. So what do you, this one I, this one makes me laugh too. The idea, and then the last one kind of tied into this, but the misconception that everything paper is now gone, is now automatically gone. I can, for myself, I know just, just last week I, I had my kids make posters in small groups and we hung them up just because it was something that I wanted to be visible in the classroom all the time and not have to get the Chromebooks out to view. So for sure that's not true. There's things that I think will always have a place to be done on paper for various reasons. Yeah, I kind of think back to middle school, you maybe maybe even a little bit in the later years of my elementary school where I'm going down to check out an encyclopedia to do my project. Yeah. Oh yeah. And right. uh, as you got into the high school and the internet came around in, you know, 1996 or so, sure. you started to get online encyclopedias and online databases and and things like that and I found myself and even to this day as I continue my schooling, I'll go onto a database, I'll read a couple of the abstracts, try to figure out what article is going to work best for me, and what's the next thing I do? I print it out. And why? And the reason is, is there's a value to flipping through things. There's a value there. And And for me, it just helps me retain the information because I'm physically using my hands to work with it, and I'm not just swiping. For me, there's always going to be a space where until we get holograms or something like that. yeah. There's always going to be a a space for paper-based products. And sometimes when you think about multiple intelligences and and things like that and how we learn, well, I need something physical in front of me. Right. You might know more than me uh, with your uh, research you've been doing, but I'm pretty sure there's, there's like scientific evidence to support that handwriting, like actually physically writing something out, it helps to hardwire the information in your brain. Like that's a documented thing. You remember better and you connect to content more when you're engaged in it that way, which I think is another great reason to kind of say, well, yeah, no, the, the paper stuff is not going to totally go away because there is, like you were just saying, there's a documented value to that. There definitely is value to that. I guess, where do we go from here? What I'm interested in is it's been three, four years since we started getting one-to-one devices into our school. So I guess my question is, if you're out there and you're just starting the one-to-one process, how much beginning knowledge did you have or do you have right now? What type of professional developments are preparing you to incorporate one-to-one devices into your classrooms? Are you getting that professional development support or is this something that your district really wants you to pick up and investigate on your own. Right. So these are a couple of the questions I have. I find it interesting because I know how we piloted it here um, and we, they had someone come in and kind of 
give us an overview of what they did in their one-to-one. Right. And from there, we kind of took it in our own directions and then reported back as a big group and kind of shared. So I'm just wondering how other districts are starting to get that piloting program going. Can we share some ideas and learn from each other's shortcomings or downfalls? Or sure, is there something else out there that we could help you with? So if you have any uh, questions about the one-to-one or if you feel like you could share about your own personal experiences with incorporating one-to-one or integrating one-to-one in the classroom, hit us up on Twitter, shoot us an email. We'd love to hear from you. It's time for the Tick Battle Royale! That's right, we're back for another Tech Battle Royale. It is Nick and I squaring off again. We've done so many, I think three. Three of them, yeah, three so far. Three so far, and who's winning? I think uh, you're up by one. You've got two wins, I've got one win. That was a very verbose answer. It's just a name. (laughs) Who's winning? That would be uh that would be you. Geis is winning by one. Throw that in there. You heard that. Uh, I am winning. It doesn't matter what the number is, but <laughs> we're gonna go at it again. And uh, before we uh, throw out our pieces of tech that we're gonna battle up against, we we need to give you guys the categories. They have changed a little bit. Right. So the categories uh, will be productivity, video and screencasting, learning management systems, STEM language, Google add-ons, fun and games, history. So far, those are all the same. This week, we're adding in um, research as an additional category, as well as Spinner's Choice teacher favorites and student favorites. Guys, spin the wheel. And the winner is, go ahead, Nick. Looks like, interestingly enough, we've got research as our category this week. The new one that we just added, which I think is going to give us some pretty cool things to talk about. Do you have something in mind that you uh, feel confident arguing me with? Arguing me with. Let's see here. Uh, I'm not really sure about that one. What, is that the wrong way to say that? You can't say arguing me with? I, I, I guess you can. I mean... You could say whatever you want. We should probably do some research on that. Probably. You see what I did there? Oh, clever. Tying uh, it in. Research. There we go. All right. Yeah. So, you know, I won, so I believe you have to go first. I do have a couple uh, tricks up my sleeve, and I'm All interested right. to see. I have a feeling I know what you're going to go with. All right. Which, I'm not going to say this, but it was one on my list. I'm not going to tell you where it was on my list. But, you, <laughs> I mean, I could see... Uh, over there your list of 20 or 25 tech tools over there sure and you only have one underneath this so i think that narrows it down all right well yeah i mean if i get to go first and you're right i do only have one uh outline for this category so i'm going to jump into it because this is actually one of my favorites it's called google arts and culture first of all just a little bit of background what it is where to find it it is it's just a website there's no app nothing to download you just type in the address easiest way to get there would probably be to just google it and you just type in uh, google arts and culture it'll pop up the actual url is artsandculture.google.com for anybody who wants to try to type that in the uh i think the best thing to compare this to would sort of be like an online art gallery an online museum but it does have so much more just to walk you through some of the uh the coolest things um, about google arts and culture and i would recommend if you're looking at the main page that you click on the tab in the upper right hand corner labeled explore just because that's going to outline for you the highlights of the of the site one of the first things it lets you do is use what it calls an art camera the art camera lets you view artwork in extreme up close high 
definition, which I don't know what that sounds like to you guys. I don't know if you're into art or not, but it is extremely fascinating to take a work of art, which in a museum normally you just kind of look at. You can't get very close or the alarm goes off or you get yelled at by the security people. <laughs> right. But to go up really super close and see all the individual brush strokes, it gives you a better sense of how the artist might have created that work. It's fascinating and uh, it's great for research. Not only, I mean, it's, if you are if you are learning how to paint and trying to research how to uh, create some art yourself or if you're just looking into a given artist for a project, really, really cool. Um, it lets you do 360 degree videos. So cool. It's really cool. It lets you kind of step right in to the to the action of not just visual art like paintings and drawings, photography, but uh, performances as well. You can actually watch videos of performances, plays, operas, ballet, as if you were there sitting in the audience. It's really, really cool. And the 360 degree part means you can click and drag and almost as if you're looking around the room during the performance. It's really, really cool. And then the last part, which I think is actually my favorite one, is called Street View. Really easy to find. There's just a little button there on the Explore page that says Street View. Comparable to the Street View of Google Maps, I think most people have done this by now. But if you haven't, in Google Maps, when you search an address, and it pops up a little picture of that address uh, from the street. That's why it's called Street View. You can click on that image and drag around and the screen moves as if you were there at that address. You can look down the street, you can swivel, look the other direction, you can look at the houses along the side of the street, zoom in, zoom out. Anyways, this street view in Google Arts and Culture is like that, except instead of on a street, you are inside of uh, famous museums and other artistic places. The first one they have listed, just for example, is the Taj Mahal. So you can click on it. It pops up an image of the Taj Mahal as if you were standing right outside the front gates. You can click, different arrows pop up, and it lets you move around within the Taj Mahal, go down different hallways as if you were walking them yourself, zoom in, zoom out, view things, turn left, turn right. It's uh, certainly not a replacement for being there and visiting uh, the actual venues themselves. But if you can't, as, as many of us uh, probably can't, it is it is just so cool. And a lot of it's in high def too. I'm looking at the Taj Mahal one uh, as I'm going through this. And it's, I mean, you feel like uh, you almost get the sense that you're there looking right at these things. So Google Arts and Culture is extremely awesome for doing any kind of research on these, these famous places, artwork, just some of the other ones that you can see real quick with this virtual uh, street view. I'm talking about uh, the Bolshoi theater you can go into uh, in Moscow, the Guggenheim in New York, Daigoji Temple, I don't know how you say that, in Kyoto, St. Paul Cathedral in London, and there's like 20 others. It's amazing. Try to beat that. I'm not going to lie. That was number one on my list as well. I was very, very, I almost think that if I won, I could choose to go first and I should have probably have done that, but you live and you learn. Um, one thing I will say, and I, th I think uh, you did a good job describing it, but if you had to use it in a lesson, I, I think it's it, instead of just substituting for an online encyclopedia or something like that, this, this takes your lessons to a whole new level. And uh, adding that into like Tor Builder or something like that can even advance it even further. Not to argue your point, but... Well, I, appreci I appreciate you helping me out. That'll be, that'll be good for my win in a little bit. Ooh. Very, very confident or very, very cocky. One or the other. <laughs> Not sure yet. We'll see. Mm -hmm. All right. My, mine is uh, Project Gutenberg. Michael Hart was the founder of Project Gutenberg, and he's also the inventor of the ebook. Now, for bonus points here, Nick, when do you think the ebook was created? Ebook. Uh, man, I, okay, so internet 
really only became a thing that we all used regularly in like the late 90s, right? So maybe ebooks probably started with that. I'm going to go 98. He says 98. 1971. Whoa. Yeah, so a little off story of your life, but we'll move on. Uh, This project is now continuing on in memory of Michael Hart, the founder of Project Gutenberg. What Project Gutenberg is, is a collection of free ebooks. 56,000 plus ebooks are in this collection, and they are also starting to record audiobooks, and this is all based on volunteers. So basically, when books are outside of their copyright, it allows Project Gutenberg to put it online. So what this is going to do is it's going to give our students the opportunity to get these free e-books, and maybe there's some libraries out there that can't afford buying every copy of something, and it allows them to provide this service for free. They get volunteers to read these books to make the audio format of them, and then they'll throw them online. Now, this Project Gutenberg supports net neutrality, so gotta throw that out there. And also, the site says that the public domain will grow again in 2019 based on past laws. So, Mm. past laws is... uh, extended the life of copyright dates this okay. is going to allow them to pick up a couple more so you got ebooks students can uh, access these ebooks teachers can access the ebooks and they can tie that into a curriculum and then also there are the audio recordings of these ebooks will which will help i know me personally i like to listen to the recorded uh, audiobooks yeah sure i mean there's something to be said for actually reading the book yourself but i, I think we all can agree that the the ebooks and the audio recordings are pretty cool and uh especially on long road trips and stuff like that. Yep. But uh, special ed kids can definitely benefit from having more ebooks out there. It'll allow them to take a look at some books that they wouldn't normally be able to take a look at. And it allows their selection of, of a book for a project, a book report or something like that to just grow, which I think is important to give them selection. And to be honest, I think I'd rather listen to somebody's actual voice rather than the robot voice or someone that has a monotone like me right uh read an ebook it's, I, I just think this uh, is very beneficial so i want everyone to imagine this you're doing uh you're having your the students in your class do uh reports and there's a student who's doing a report on machu picchu always wanted to go to machu picchu sounds really super cool you could have that student look up an ebook from 1983 on machu picchu and listen to some random guy talk about it or, or read whatever was written in the ebook or You could go to Google Arts and Culture and have them stand at the top of Machu Picchu and be able to click and zoom around looking at all the different ins and outs, all the rock features, all the people that were there at that time, down over the cliffs, into the mountains, really getting a feel for the place because clearly we can't, you can't go to Machu Picchu in the middle of the school year. What would you rather do? And with that, you might as well chalk that one up to uh, (laughs) Nick Johnson, everybody. I Uh, mean, that's a little, little bit unfair. I think... The real answer is use these two resources in tandem, of course, because my, mine can give the, uh, the the feel of of the actual place, which is so cool. Whereas the ebook might actually give you more information. But I'm going to say just the the visual awesomeness of uh, what Google Arts and Culture lets you do gives you the slight edge. That, uh, on that's this. right. I mean, let's visit Machu Picchu through your tech tool, and then let's pull up an ebook and allow them to explain. They say pictures are worth a thousand words. Is it a thousand? I think it's a thousand. 
Alright, every picture's worth a thousand words. Well, grab the picture through his tech tool, grab the words through mine. Does that, uh, are you agreeing though that I get the, get the win on this one? Well, you're kind of arguing for a tie and using them in uh, collaboration, but I think yours oh, I mean, is far superior than mine, but right. both of them have a place in education. All right, so I'll, I'll take the slight win on that, which means that I will get to give the victorious speech. Yep, that's right. You get to do it, and uh, we'll give you your half tally or your lightly colored tally going down the paper <laughs> so it's two bold for guys one and one half bold for for johnson to wrap up today's episode my victory speech will invoke the words of elvis presley who said values are like fingerprints nobody's are the same but you leave them all over everything you do so as winter ends and spring begins we challenge our listeners to take a moment and consider your own core values as an educator what drives you? Why did you become a teacher? How can you continue to fuel that passion? For me, I always remember my high school teacher, Mr. Hodge, and the love of chemistry and education that he passed on to me. Geist thinks about his paternal heritage and the coaches that have instilled lessons of preparation and respect. Whatever your core values are, identify them, reflect on them, but most importantly, use them to drive your teaching and try new things. Thanks for listening to Got Tech, the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at WeGotTech or follow along on our website, gottech.com. Until next time.